Good morning, Christ Community. My name is Chris Blackman. I'm one of our pastoral interns, and I'm very happy to have the privilege to be kicking off our Advent series today uh, through the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at the first three chapters of the book of Matthew over the course of the next few weeks for our Advent series. But if you have your Bible, please go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. Matthew 1 verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A uh, while back, my mother was going through some of her things that she got from uh, my grandmother, her mother, after she passed. And we found uh, a family tree that uh, I guess she had gotten at a family reunion at one point that we hadn't seen before. And so we were having fun kind of going through it, and it was really fascinating. You know, it started with uh, like our first uh, descendant. Uh, who had actually immigrated to the United States. Jacob Kramer in the 1830s moved from Montabar, Germany to New York City. And it was really cool to you know, follow. Okay, they moved to New York and then his descendants settled in uh, New Jersey and eventually going down to my mother's mother, my grandmother, and then my mother. And then it finally ended with me, Chris Blackman. And when we got to that point at the very end, my sister, my older sister by five years said, well, hey, hold up. Like, why are you on here? But I'm not, right? I'm the older sibling. And yet 
they only put you. And uh, she was obviously a bit chagrined at that and it was a little puzzling and a lot of awkward laughs. But, you know, and thinking through it, we figured maybe the idea was uh, they were thinking like the oldest male son kind of carries on the family line. Whether that's a good way to do a genealogy or not, I don't know. But isn't it fascinating that we all have this uh, kind of obsession of, of where we come from? And I'm sure you've seen the, the commercials for Ancestry.com. Uh, you know, we all want to know kind of where our people come from, what is our past, and how does that really play into who we are as people? We see Matthew also begins with the genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And if you use just your imagination just a little bit, I'm sure you could realize that you know, each generation had the hope that uh, their children, that the next generation could have a, a new start, a new beginning. We often yearn for this for our own children, right? A better life than the one we had. In the Bible, it's even more intense, right? That God promised all the way back in Genesis that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent, right? That God's people had this promise from long ago that God would bring a new start and a new beginning. And we see that Matthew is calling back to this throughout the generations and finally indicating to us that it has arrived in Jesus Christ. And so the key truth I want us to think through today is that God's plan for the world is to make all things new through His Son, Jesus, the Messiah. That God's plan, going back generations after generations, was to bring about this renewal of His creation, right? This new beginning. And it's finally coming about at this time in world history, and Matthew wants us to grasp that from the very beginning of the gospel. So, thinking about that new beginning, let me ask you this question to bring this into our life here in 2020. How many of you wish you could hit the restart button on the year 2020? Or go ahead and uh, skip ahead and begin 2021 already? You know, I think of all times, uh, you know, any year in recent memory, it's probably this one where I wish, like, could we just get a do-over? Uh, I was not ready for that. Or could we just go ahead and skip ahead to when all the craziness of this year is, is done and gone? We yearn for a new beginning. We yearn for a new start in so many ways. 2020 has taken so many things from us that we wish uh, that we could just hit restart on it all. We see that Matthew connects with this idea of yearning for a new beginning. Right? The very first word actually, of Matthew's gospel in the original language uh, is the word Genesis. It's the word in your English translation probably for the book of genealogy, right? or almost more literally, the book of beginnings, of new beginnings. Right? Matthew wants us to know that an even greater Genesis, an even greater creation is coming about now than the creation and the Genesis we see in the first book of the Bible that God is actually recreating the world through His Son. Right? A new creation has begun, and the hope of a new beginning for the people of God is here. And it's all coming about in Jesus. We're going to be looking at that in our passage today in two different ways. 
The first one is that our new beginning comes through God's fulfilled promises. If we zoom in here, just on the first verse of Matthew's gospel, it's, it's rich in theological language. Matthew jam-packs his gospel with so much so that we would come away knowing who Jesus really is. And he says, look, this is the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? He's front-loading that with three very important titles for Jesus, trying to tell us who he really is. Right? And not to assume uh, anyone's knowledge of the Bible or uh, your history in church, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? He's not Jesus part of the Christ family. No, Christ is, is actually a title, meaning the anointed one. It's the Greek version of the word Messiah from the Old Testament. Right, that Matthew is saying Jesus is this anointed king, this prophesied Messiah going all the way back to the Old Testament. He's the one we've been waiting for, and he's finally here. That Jesus is the one. Right, don't get distracted by all these other saviors and messiahs that try to sell themselves to you. Hey, follow me and I'll fix it all. Matthew is saying, no, there's only one true Christ, one true Messiah, and his name is Jesus. He also gives us two more very important titles, right? The son of David and the son of Abraham. And we see that these are alluding to uh, the covenant promises of God to his people back in the Old Testament, right? The covenant promise to David and the covenant promise to Abraham, right? And understanding the purpose of Matthew bringing up these, these titles and these promises, um, is very important for understanding why Jesus came, right? Who Jesus is, right? He's telling us something about the work of Jesus in the world. And so first, let's look at this covenant promise uh, as the son of David. You know, if you flipped over to uh, 2 Samuel 7, you'd see this covenant promise to King David that one day, one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Right? Not just one of your descendants will rule and have a good time, maybe 30, 40 years of a good kingship, and then he'll die. No, God is saying one of your descendants is going to come, and he's going to be a king eternal. His reign will never end. Right? What an awesome promise that God made to King David. I'm sure at the time, David maybe didn't even fully understand all the implications of what that promise meant. But he knew God was. He knew that God kept his promises, and he put his faith that God would send a greater king than even himself to fulfill that promise. Matthew calling Jesus the son of David is saying that king has come to reign over his people, and that king will reign forever. But if uh, the promise to David was in many ways a promise to like the Israelites and to God's people those who had heard the word already, right? Then the promise to Abraham was not just for God's people, but for the whole world, right? God's promise, covenant promise to Abraham was to bless him, to produce a great nation from him, but also to bless the nations of the world, right? That not just the Israelites would experience the blessings of God, but that people in far-flung places, people who are very far from God, would hear the word, would be invited into God's kingdom and ultimately into his family. 
And so Matthew is telling us, look, the king has come, the son of David, the greater king than David is here. But also, that king is fulfilling the blessings that God had promised to Abraham, that through him and his descendants, the world would experience true blessing. Right? It's already alluding to the way that the book of Matthew will end in that Jesus sends out his disciples into all the world to preach the good news. That Matthew sees this from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. That he's always been about sending out the gospel to the nations. So we see in these promises, right, that Jesus is coming to fulfill them. But lest we get too comfortable, we need to remember right, the context in which uh, Matthew's readers would have heard that Jesus is fulfilling this. Right? It had been... Uh, over 400 years since they had heard from God in the last books of the Old Testament. 400 years of silence. I mean, just think about that. 400 years. Like, I get impatient if my internet is slow for four minutes. <laughs> Can you imagine waiting 400 years for the promises of God to come true? And not just 400 years of waiting but hearing regularly, but actually 400 years of seeming silence. I mean, think about the question, what is the hardest part about waiting? It's got to be the silence. It's got to be the not knowing, the lack of a sense of fulfillment. I mean, waiting can test anyone's patience, but 400 years... And yet we see that God's timing is not our timing, right? That when God promises something, he's going to come through with it. But I love 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Right? That all the promises of God come true in Jesus. And yet... Right, God's timing is often very different than our timing. And you've got to wonder, if you read through the genealogy, right, how you know, Abraham wondered, maybe, maybe my son will be the fulfillment of this promise. And then Isaac comes and Isaac is wondering, maybe my son will be the fulfillment of this promise. And on and on that they were wondering, when is God going to bring about the fulfillment of what he promised to us? And yet we see... The beauty of this genealogy is that many, many generations right, were faithful because they held on to the promises of God in the silence. Right? That there are times in your life that you are going to have to wait, and waiting can be painful. Waiting for a new job. Waiting for a report from a doctor that can tell you whether things are good or not waiting for healing in your family, right? waiting for healing from struggling with things like mental illness or consistent pain. Much of our life is waiting. And the hardest part about waiting is waiting in silence. But brothers and sisters, if there's one thing we can learn from the many generations who have gone before us, it's to hold on to the promises of God. It's not blind faith. No, it's faith in a God who does fulfill them. 
and that actually we have an even better assurance than those who went before us, because God has already fulfilled so many of His promises in His Son, Jesus Christ. We, have, we are seeing that here in the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. I love this quote from uh, Sinclair Ferguson, summarizes this very well. God has a 2,000-year-long perspective on the way He will keep His promises. Therefore, we need to learn not to insist He will keep His promises in our way, at our beck and call, in our time, and preferably now. Or from 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, earlier this uh, spring, as, you know, we were trying to quarantine, we didn't know uh, exactly, you know, uh, how wise it was to go out or not. We took up the hobby that I'm sure many people did of gardening. And uh, even though we just have a little, like, apartment balcony, we set up a little, like, planter out there, and we planted seeds. And, you know, we're waiting for the seeds to sprout. And on the package, it said, like, yeah, like, maybe two to three weeks. You know, water it a little, give it some sun. Two to three weeks, you're going to start seeing some sprouts. Well, two to three weeks went by, and we had just had hard dirt, right? Not a single sprout there at all. You know, every day past that, like, three-week window, uh, Kelsey and I were like, should we, like, should we dump this dirt? Should we just start over? Maybe we got bad seeds. You know, maybe the promise of these seeds growing is not going to come true. But for some reason, I was like, yeah, maybe let's wait, right? We, we always have found some reason to just wait a little bit longer. Let's just see if something can come out of this hard ground. And finally, after like almost, you know, two months, it seemed, we finally started seeing little sprouts coming up of what looked like just hard and dry ground in which there was no life at all. That God's promises are often like seeds growing out of the ground. If you've ever tried to plant anything, you know that it never happens on your schedule, but it will happen. If you hold on to His promises, if you're faithful and watering and tending to it, we'll see that God will bring about the fulfillment that He has told us He will bring. That Jesus fulfills the covenant promises and makes sense of what often seems to us like a, a messy and complicated family history with much silence. The second point we're going to look at is our new hope for Christ's uncommon family. Right? If we took the time to go through every single name in this genealogy, uh, we could be here for hours just talking about the very complicated and often sin-filled and broken and messy family that Jesus actually comes out of. And not only that, but it seems like Matthew is highlighting on purpose, right, some of the messiest members of Jesus' lineage. And so the question I want you to think about as we look at this quickly is how have you lost hope that Jesus can renew broken and messy relationships in your family? I'm sure uh, when Jacob finally learned that uh, his 11 sons had tried to kill Joseph 
and tossed him in a pit and then eventually sold him into slavery. I wonder if he despaired that there'd ever be reconciliation or healing in his family. I'm sure when God's people entered the promised land and instead of obeying God and clearing it out, they, they intermixed and intermarried with a lot of the peoples there and took on their pagan beliefs, right? If the few faithful wondered, man, will God's people ever get it right? Can there ever be healing? Can there ever be godliness and true obedience among the followers of God? In particular, Matthew highlights these four women in Jesus' lineage, right? He highlights Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And as I said, it seems like he's picking this, these four women not because they're uh, the most wonderful examples of faith and purity, but no, almost the opposite. They seem to, to carry with them almost the, the least uh, Israelite heritage, and they all in some way have a connection um, with uh, sexual sin in some way, whether committed to them or by them or around them in their culture at the time. You know, why didn't Matthew pick someone like uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who's quoted in Hebrews 11 as a hero of the faith? Why not Rebecca, the wife of Jacob, right, who uh, is held up as this example of a good and godly woman in many ways? No, he highlights Tamar, right, who marries at first Judah's son, uh, but Judah's son is marrying Tamar, who is not of the people of God. She's a Canaanite. She's a pagan at the time. And Judah's son ends up being so wicked, right, that God actually has to, to take his life because he's so evil. And Tamar ends up having to, to commodify herself, to sell herself, right, to end up uh, holding on to the promises of God to his people. And we see she ends up in the family of God, and Judah ultimately ends up calling her, right, a woman of greater faith and righteousness than even he. Or how about the story of Rahab, who when God's people come into Jericho, right, she's the proprietor of a brothel at the time. And yet amazingly, she says, I want to surrender to your God. I want to follow your God. I want to be a part of God's people, right? And she's brought in and ultimately marries an Israelite man. And their son, Boaz, marries Ruth, who in many ways is uh, probably the, the best example of virtue among the four. And yet she too is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She's a foreigner. And yet she seems to be more faithful than many of the Israelites in her story. And finally, there's Bathsheba, right, who Matthew almost seems to blush at because he doesn't even name her by name. He says, you know, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, wasn't an Israelite, it seems. He was a Hittite, according to the Old Testament, right? But we see her connection with David and his sin, right, would seem to taint the family of God in so many ways. And so why would Matthew emphasize, why would he include these women instead of trying to, you know, uh, whitewash the messiness of history? Well, it seems like he's making the point, uh, and I love how Nancy Guthrie puts this in one of her books, right? Jesus came from a long line of outsiders, outlaws, 
scoundrels and sinners. Right, that when God is fulfilling his plan by sending his son Jesus, he has his son enter into the history of God's people, and it's not a history of perfect obedience. No, actually, it's a history of failures, of lack of faith. And often the examples of faith are of people who are non-Israelites, right, in contrast to themselves. And yet Jesus came for these people. He came for messy families. He came for the broken. He came for those who have committed sexual sin. He's come for those who feel like they have done something to disqualify themselves from the promises of God. Jesus is saying, look, it's not your obedience that's going to bring about the promises of God being fulfilled. No, ultimately, it's going to be in the obedience of Jesus Christ. That we put our faith in Him to ultimately heal to cleanse the messiness of our families, right? That Jesus ultimately brings redemption to a messy past, right? That he can shine light even into what has already happened. That Jesus is saying, I'm not ashamed to be from the family of women like Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba and Rahab. No, these grandmothers in the faith, right, are exactly the reason why We needed a savior. Jesus came, right, to bring about the healing of the tangled mess that we often live in. And ultimately, we see that God is calling us to a new family, right? If God often uh, calls in, right, the people of many nations, right, we see that the family of God is not just those of uh, biological connection, right, or connection through marriage, Now, the family that Jesus is starting is an uncommon family. And we already see that in the lineage of Jesus. How much more so the uncommon family of the church, called together by the Holy Spirit through the truth of the gospel. Right, I love how Jesus says this when his his own biological family comes uh, to, to take him away from his crazy ministry. And Jesus says, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my brother and my sister. That Jesus is calling us, his church, into an uncommon family. And lest we think that we get it right all the time too, our uncommon family is often just as messy and as broken as Jesus is here in the genealogy. And yet God doesn't look on us as a hopeless case, but he looks on us and says, I'm going to bring the hope of Jesus Christ, the hope of a new beginning. So hear this wonderful quote from uh, Mark Ross's commentary on Matthew as he's summarizing what's going on in the genealogy. The very first words of the book in its original Greek text, Biblios Genesos, literally Book of Genesis, are reminiscent of the first book of the Bible. This imagination of Genesis suggests that Matthew, like John in John 1.1, is announcing a new Genesis, a new beginning, a new creation. The Old Testament had promised this in Isaiah. The New Testament will close with the same announcement. Behold, I am making all things new. Is it really possible that all things can be made new? Can our lives be made new? 
Can the world be made new? Matthew and the New Testament answer these questions with an unequivocal yes. And brothers and sisters, if that doesn't give you hope of healing in our world and in our families and in ourselves, that God can bring a new beginning out of the messiest of families, out of the messiest of situations, out of the most broken places. And so, finally closing with this question, how does the reconciliation we have in Jesus Christ give you hope for family renewal? How does this message of a new beginning give you hope that God has not given up on your broken families? Because He hasn't given up on His family, the church. We've gone through a difficult season of COVID and an election and so many things that want to tear us apart. But Jesus is saying, don't give up hope. Hold on to my promises. Hold on to the hope that I can bring healing and reconciliation and that my family will continue for the glory of God. In conclusion, we see that Matthew 1, 1 through 17 teaches us that God is worthy of trust because He has already fulfilled His promises in Jesus Christ. And that it, God, Jesus renews our hope in the reconciling power of the gospel in our families and in our churches. Amen.